that basically the dollars became less and less backed. And eventually you kind of hit a breaking point where gold was drawn down far enough and, and dollar liabilities went up high enough that the system broke. And of course, we all know in 1971, uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard, uh, but that wasn't like an isolated incident. All the math was, was breaking down in the 60s that led up to that. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. In this one, investment strategist Lynn Alden and entrepreneur and author Jeff Booth join us. I'm glad you found your way here. Enjoy. This is a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin. I am Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Have another great one for you all today with Lynn Alden and Jeff Booth. Before we dive in, uh, just a quick word from Swan. All of you Swan members out there are taking advantage of this sale on sats in earnest. It's great to see the strong hands of Swan hodlers uh, taking advantage of this and, and increasing their stacks on this dip. Instant buy volume is way up. Uh, it's great to see. We also have a big increase in wires coming in to make bigger purchases. Uh, and you can also go to uh, swanbitcoin.com slash treasury or email treasury at swanbitcoin.com to get your corporation or company uh, treasury accumulating Bitcoin. We've been helping quite a, onboard quite a few companies. That is the new trend kicked off by our friend Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy. So uh, ex exciting to see this uh, growth in Bitcoin, this growth in Swan. Uh, Swan is a Bitcoin only company. We are focused on the only cryptocurrency that has a role on the global monetary stage. And as such, we can offer very competitive fees, very low fees compared to other big players in the space. Uh, we are 60 to 80% lower fees than Coinbase, uh, on average about 50% lower fees than Cash App. Uh, and so, I think it's a, it's a no-brainer. Get over to swanbitcoin.com, start stacking sats. It's a great time to get your family and friends on board as well. Uh, we are also focused on Bitcoin education through our YouTube channel. We have podcasts, uh, Twitter, Facebook. We're even spinning up TikTok and Instagram now. We're leaving no stone unturned. We're going to find all of those potential new coiners. We're also on the new uh, audio social media app Clubhouse. And of course, we have a great blog on which one of our guests today, Lynn Alden, published a piece called why Bitcoin is not a Ponzi scheme, point by point, uh, yesterday, that dropped yesterday. So check out the blog. It's at swanbitcoin.com. You'll see the link at the top of the page for our blog. All right, let's dive into this one with Lynn and Jeff. So Lynn Alden is an investment strategist at Lynn Alden Investment Strategies. She's also an advisor here at Swan Bitcoin. And Jeff Booth's a very long time, success successful tech entrepreneur, uh, businessman, and he's also author of The Price of Tomorrow, uh, which is a great book that I suggest everyone read. It lays out why we need Bitcoin. We basically, Bitcoin is inevitable because of the uh, technological deflationary environment that we're living in and that requires uh, a deflationary money to pair with it. Uh, great read. Uh, so yes, again, welcome to both of you. Thanks for being here. You both recently wrote pieces uh, as well on uh, Lynn's piece had dropped uh, late last year, I think just a couple weeks ago, the fraying of the U.S. global currency reserve system. And Jeff's uh, article, The Greatest Game, uh, two great pieces. And I think they complement each other well. And I think 
that's one reason that we wanted to have both of you on here today. Um, actually, this is Lynn's fourth time on the show, so thanks for doing that. Jeff, your second time on the show. The two uh, of these, uh, two of them were together for the first time on episode 21, way back in July of last year. Lots happened since then. Uh, so it's good to have you both back, back again. Let's kick it off um, with Lynn. Your piece goes into the history uh, behind like the evolution to the petrodollar system, which started in the 70s. Uh, that's fantastic. And I wondered if you could just give us a summary. I'd like to focus on the heart of that piece, which is uh, chapter three, the fraying of the petrodollar system. Uh, if you could give us just a quick summary on you know, the, the dollar up, into, uh, up to that point, and then we can dive into that section of your article. Yeah, I think we're still unable to hear Lynn at the moment. So we'll get that figured out. Uh, Brecky, maybe you can help her behind the scenes. Uh, so Jeff, let's start with you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so in the in the center of your piece as well, uh, it's, you have a section titled The Breakdown Phase. Uh, and I think it complements Lynn's piece well uh, in, that, in that section too. So maybe you can talk for a minute about this uh, breakdown of the US dollar that we are currently experiencing. Well, uh, and let's start with the central thesis of the book, right? And and then we'll build from there. Uh, so, so central thesis of the book is technology is moving and providing kind of less labor, more efficiency in just about every market today. Um, and that has to be deflationary. It has to, and, and so 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 over time, you can expect the exact opposite to happen. The, uh, on the other side to try to because it, if, if deflation takes hold the entire market resets banks fail the 90 percent collapse of asset prices everything resets uh, and, and it's pretty uh, uh, obviously ugly and so what governments all around the world are doing not just in the u.s but everywhere are trying to stop that by by printing their way out of it and it's printing into a hole but you could expect it to continue um, and so, so if you understand that the existing system is all based on credit and you have to keep growth going at all costs, then the, the mathematically, if technology is driving things cheaper and you have to expand the monetary supply to keep, you know, keep things going up, going up in price, price. So out of that, the, 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 the political political divide, upheaval of society, everything is a second order effect out of that kind of fundamental two forces competing against each other. A system we've been in all our, all our lives that's inflationary and a, and a deflationary technology environment. And a lot of the inflation that people talk about and everything else were to, so I still personally believe that the entire macro environment is deflationary and that the more printing, the more um, at some sort of magnitude of number, the if, especially if that moves into fiscal stimulus, maybe you could create inflation. I don't actually understand how you could create long-term inflation because for long-term inflation, you'd have to have economic value being delivered to society and higher and higher, uh, and higher, and higher growth rates. And and so most of the money is misallocated capital. Too. We're hey, Lynn, do we have you? Uh, we have Lynn back. Oh, nice. 
Yes, excellent. So Jeff just gave us a breakdown of the breakdown phase, which is kind of the central part of his latest article, The Greatest Game. And I thought that paired well with the kind of central heart of your latest article as well, not latest, but um, recent article, The Fraying of the U.S. Global Currency Reserve System. Uh, I was wondering if you could just kind of bring us up uh, with a summary uh, of the history of the dollar up to the petrodollar system, and then we can talk about what's happened since then, all of the ramifications for society, et cetera, and kind of focus a little bit on that. And I know Jeff will have plenty to, to uh, contribute on that, uh, that discussion as well. Sure. Are you able to hear me now? Do I, am I coming across clear? Yes. Okay. Clear, loud um, and clear. Yeah. So my article focused on a couple different phases of how the global reserve currency works. And so uh, prior to 1944, uh, a lot of countries are on a gold standard, right? So they, they all backed their fiat currencies, you know, their, their paper currencies by, by gold held at the central bank. Um, now, technically at the time, uh, Britain uh, had a more dominant currency, uh, but it, it didn't really work like today, right? So, so it was more decentralized in a sense. Um, and we started to see the rising power of the United States. We, you know, they became a very large uh, creditor nation, right? So they were running very large trade surpluses. And of course, as the war kind of wound up, uh, the United States was in uh, by far the strongest position. Uh, and so they instituted uh, the Bretton Woods system. And that was, you know, basically the United States had by far the most gold. Uh, they had their own gold and also foreign countries uh, deposited their gold with the United States to keep it safe. So both in a custody sense and in a directly held sense, uh, the United States had a ton of gold. And so the way it worked was that the dollar was pegged by gold uh, and then all other you know, major currencies pegged themselves to the dollar. Uh, and so we had this, this period of fixed exchange rates. And there were a couple of different debates on how to do it back then. So for example, uh, uh, Keynes wanted to go with a Bancor route, which was basically that there'd be a unit of account that's neutral. There'd be like a basket of currencies and, and that would be like the, the, you know, the global reserve currency and all other currencies would be pegged to that. Uh, but the United States position was that they wanted the dollar to be the, the active of the system. And that's what ultimately won out. Uh, now, unfortunately, that system ended up being unsustainable as a bunch of economists, uh, including Keynes and, and Robert Triffin, uh, anticipated. And the reason for that is that the United States had a finite amount of gold, uh, but the amount of dollars uh, you know, in circulation kept increasing. So the, the treasuries and the dollars uh, held by the foreign sector. And so even though at that time, uh, Americans could not own gold, the foreign sector could still, um, you know, the foreign official sector could still redeem their dollars for gold. Uh, and that started to happen. And so over time, uh, the, basically the dollars became less and less backed. And eventually you kind of hit a breaking point where gold was drawn down far enough and, and dollar liabilities went up high enough that the system broke. And of course, we all know in 1971, uh, Nixon took us off the gold standard, uh, but that wasn't like an isolated incident. All the math was, was breaking down in the 60s that led up to that. And so uh, from there, we've been on a floating exchange rate system where all these different currencies around the world are not backed by anything in particular. They're not, they're not pegged to gold. Uh, they're just free-floating currencies based on supply, demand, and based on the fact that each country uh, can use taxation and, and various regulation to ensure that it's used as a unit of account uh, you know, to the best of their ability in their borders. Uh, and so, but that created all sorts of issues because you know, you, you can make it so that your own uh, citizens use it, but how do you make it so that foreigners uh, you know, accept your, your, your paper, right? So if the United States wants to buy oil, you know, are we just gonna give them paper that's not backed by anything? Because uh, before that time, you know, uh, the idea of a fiat currency was, was you know, not, 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 it wasn't very widely done, right? So this was like the, the whole world was basically turned to a fiat currency system uh, pretty much overnight. And so the way that they kind of brought order back to that chaos 
was that the United States made deals with uh, Saudi Arabia and other members of OPEC so that they would only price their oil in dollars. And so that's true for the United States, that's true for Europe, that's true for Asia. Uh, basically, who, no matter who they're selling oil to, they only sell it in dollars. And so all those countries need dollars uh, in order to buy oil. Uh, and so they can, they can either then begin pricing their own exports in dollars so they can get dollars, or they can exchange their currency for dollars. Uh, and so that created like a, a permanent source of demand for the dollar and basically reestablished the dollar as a global reserve currency uh, rather than, you know, kind of handing off to a new system. And so for several decades, uh, you know, roughly 50 years now, we've been operating under that system. Uh, and th so the problem, though, is that kind of like how the Bretton Woods system had the flaw where if, if dollar liabilities exceed the amount of gold held, the system starts to break down. Well, the way that the petrodollar system works is that all these other countries need dollars. And so that gives the dollar a lot of demand. Uh, and so what happens is, you know, if most countries, if they have, you know, like a big trade uh, deficit, meaning that they're importing a lot more than they're, uh, you know, exporting, they usually eventually have some sort of currency crisis. Uh, and that basically makes their exports more competitive and it reduces their import power. Uh, and so they, they tend to be, you know, kind of an equilibrium over time. But the United States, because we have the global reserve currency, we never have that happen. And so we've been running pretty much a 50-year straight, uh, you know, growing trade deficit. Uh, and so basically what we've done, instead of draw down our gold reserve to support the system, we've drawn down our domestic manufacturing base by making it very uncompetitive, not just against emerging markets, but also against, uh, you know, industrial portions of Europe and Japan. So, you know, advanced peers. We basically, you know, made our, most of our manufacturing sector very uncompetitive and we've really doubled down on on financials, technical, uh, you know, uh, technology, software, uh, government. Basically, we've we've financialized our economy to a greater extent than the others. Uh, and so, the the kind of the resolution on my piece is that we're starting to see, uh, you know, turning points in that. And so, for example, we're starting to see Russia sell their oil in euros instead. Uh, so we're we're kind of breaking the monopoly that the dollar historically has on oil, and we're starting to see these alternate payment channels. We also see China increasingly interested. And going around that system. And of course, the article is very long, so it goes into a lot more kind of premises, uh, but that's kind of the major crux of it. And what's changing now is that we're starting to see a more multi-currency world as it relates to energy pricing. Uh, and that, that has kind of long-term implications for what sort of assets uh, these different countries want to hold as reserves. Thanks for that wonderful summary, bringing us up to where we are today with this petrodollar system. Jeff, it sounds to me like basically, you know, the United States sort of central product now that we export to the world are dollars. Uh, there's so much dollar denominated debt out there. Uh, how, what, what does this mean to have these massive levels of dollar denominated debt for the you know, potential collapse of the dollar? I mean, is this sustainable? Well, it, it, if you just play on what Lynn just said, the same thing's happening globally. It's not just the United States. So to, China's whole Belt and Road is the same essentially to try to get more people to use the one system, break in price price oil in, in that. But when you're talking about the exchange rates and everything else in these different countries, the opposite side of the U.S. financializing their industry and, and, and essentially using consumer power to be able to, to increase, uh, 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 increase purchasing power the opposite side of that coin for China is decreased labor and, and be the manufacturing hub. And you can, and, and 
for a lot of people that think inflation is coming and it's going to come aggressively, think about the next step of what has to happen. So the U.S. is intentionally lo lowering their dollar right now, and if it uh, and, and as that as that happens, uh, China has to devalue their currency as well. So all of that printing globally, it's not just one country; it's all stimulating and mispricing assets everywhere on this exchange rate that Lynn's, ta that Lynn's talking about. And, and you have to ask yourself, okay, if everybody is doing it, what's the downside? Could you keep getting away with it? The downside is political instability and mispricing of all assets, all assets in that environment until it breaks. So could it keep going on for some time? It could keep going on for some time. Will it keep going on for some time? Likely. The entire, it, it's, there's just instability, it's building more and more instability into the world. Normally, these are reset through World War. More, and World War won't look the same as it has historically. Um, but, but you can start to see the, the technology, the, the, the hacking of governments, the different, uh, and what's actually happening right now as a, as a, as a second order, third order effect of some of the, this instability. Lynn, in the piece you talk and you mentioned an economist uh, by the name of Triffin, who described this idea called Triffin's Dilemma. And in your piece, you cite a BIS paper, a Bank for Interna uh, International Settlements paper, that sort of lays out this dilemma, this rock in a hard place uh, oh. that the US dollar is in. So could you describe what Triffin's dilemma is and um, do you think that we're seeing that happen right now? And, you know, what do you, what's the timeline for a potential outcome of, uh, of the resolution of that dilemma, I guess? Yeah, so the Triffin dilemma, uh, basically, uh, you know, there's a couple different versions of it, which the article goes into. Uh, but the, basically the premises of it is that for the global reserve currency, uh, you have to basically balance the domestic needs of the currency with the foreign needs of the currency. And sometimes those conflict. And that's how you end up getting some sort of kind of, uh, you know, unsustainable uh, breakdown of the system over time. And so he predicted ahead of time that the Bretton Woods system would fail. Uh, and it's basically been reapplied by a lot of people to the petrodollar system. Uh, so in the Bretton Woods system, it showed up more in the capital account. Uh, whereas in the petrodollar system, it shows up in the current account, meaning that we, we run persistent deficits. And so, for example, Europe runs with a trade surplus. Uh, you know, they have a current account surplus. Japan has a current account surplus. China has a current account surplus. And so basically the way the system works, that the United States runs, uh, you know, a structural current account deficit. Uh, and these other nations are allowed to be more mercantilist in the sense that they're able to basically, you know, as to Jeff's point, intentionally devalue their currency relative to the dollar wherever possible. Uh, and so that, you know, basically we keep our uh, kind of exports uncompetitive. Uh, and so, for example, if you look at uh, Switzerland, for example, they print a lot of money and then they buy, you know, not just U.S. treasuries, but they also buy like U.S. S&P 500 stocks or like Apple stock, for example. And they do that particularly to make sure that their currency does not appreciate, right? Because they have a very large current account surplus. Uh, everybody wants to have their currency. Uh, they basically have a, you know, a very strong financial position. Uh, and so they don't want their currency to strengthen enough that it would make their exports less competitive. And so they intentionally devalue their, their currency. Same thing with Norway and a couple others, uh, also Singapore. Some of those kind of smaller uh, nations with very large sovereign wealth funds, very large current accounts. Uh, and we see it, you know, to some extent in other currencies. So, for example, you see it to some extent uh, in Japan and Europe, but to a lesser uh, level. 
Uh, China used to do it aggressively uh, ever since around 2013 with the Belt and Road Initiative. They've, they've uh, sharply reduced the amount of currency intervention they've done. And that's partially why we've seen the, the, the Chinese uh, currency strengthening compared to the dollar this year is because they actually haven't been as active as, as some might have thought. Uh, but so there, there's all these kind of different factors out there. Different countries have different policies. Uh, but basically, the, the way the incentive of the system works right now is that it does incentivize all these different countries to try to devalue their currency uh, so that they can basically boost their export power. And we see that sometimes through tariffs, sometimes like, you know, those protective actions uh, and other times through central bank interventions or building currency reserves. Jeff, one of the results of these uh, money, a monetary system that's run this way is massive wealth concentration in the United States. So at this point, the wealth concentration in the United States is larger than any other uh, developed nation, uh, Western country. Um, and that is the result of living in the system. Can you describe for the viewers how that happens and why a, a fiat money leads to concentration of wealth? Um, and I think that's where sort of in, in my book, I d d describe how in the last 20 years before COVID, there's been $185 trillion globally of call it debt, money printing, but pulling demand forward. And 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 ask yourself, um, what would asset prices be without, what would your house price be without that monitor, without that printing? And people tend to get caught in the system that they're in. So they, they, they look at if I'm in the U.S. Okay, well, it's not as bad in the U.S. It's not happening so bad in the U.S., but they forget that everybody in China, when they know that they're going to devalue a currency, is going to try to pull their money out of, out of China and put it into U.S. real estate. So it, does, it actually doesn't matter where that money is being printed. I think Lynn kind of went down the detail of that a little better, better than I, I just did. But it actually doesn't matter because it all flows back into assets because money is chasing a store of value. And those assets, so, so if you just simplify this and you say, um, if I own assets, stock, if I'm wealthy, I own assets, I own most of the stocks, and who owns the assets and who owns, uh, owns the stocks, um, you're a beneficiary of the money printer, and your assets go up as a result. And if you don't own assets, prices go up, uh, the prices of those assets go up, you can't pay your rent, you can't pay, you can't pay your food, for your food, and you get, you're, you're picking the pocket of some with this monetary policy. So you're driving this wealth divide, this inequality into society. And you're doing more and more. And again, mathematically, it has to get worse. So the next step of that is natural. The ne next step of that is because you've hurt society so bad and you've created this, this problem, the next step is you tell society, we're going to, going to tax the rich more. We're going to, now think about what it would take in taxes add up the, the, uh, what the top 10 companies make in revenue, uh, or you call it revenue. That doesn't, if you tax their entire revenue 100%, you can get close to, to, to creating a, a regime to be able to fix this. So we're so far past the point of rescue uh, on this. And so but the next step is you drive into people who will say it's not your fault we're going to we're going to create more money to give you money that we don't have to be able to so socialism becomes prevalent in that type of market 
which is really just a concentration of more power in government. So that, that axis, there, unfortunately, there is only two ways to organize the society kind of largely, um, a free market um, or, uh, uh, or control, um, and control typically moves to control by the strongest dictator. And so what we're finding by breaking the rules of a free market all over the place is we're concentrating, we're concentrating power in hands of government to solve the problem that they can't solve because it's a structural problem. So changing an actor in the system will not change the system. You could, it, 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 could, uh, it could delay the inevitable by making people feel good, but, but if you just ask even what in, is, is inflation, inflation on one side is wage deflation. So if you're trying to drive inflation and you're going to give people $2,000 uh, to be able to try it, to drive inflation, you're actually, you're trying to create wage deflation as, a, as, a, as the same thing. It's, it's the opposite side of that coin. And there is no solve from within, exist, from within the existing system. Yeah, so Jeff just got to the kind of opposite side of that coin. And that's a chart that, I reference often, and you included in your piece, Lynn, uh, and that's the chart that shows productivity continuing to rise at the same pace that it had been for 100 years, and uh, worker compensation w uh, wages just flatlining essentially uh, in the middle in the mid uh, middle 70s, right around 1975 or so. Um, that combined with, I mean, obviously that helps drive the wealth concentration, but I think people have a hard time understanding this effect on society, uh, on individual lives, and then collectively on society. Can you talk to us about how these, you know, just basically uh, stealing time from people's product, stealing productivity from people, not compensating them for it for the last 50 years? Uh, what kind of effect does that have on society? It really depends on what country you look at, because we've actually had pretty radically different outcomes in different countries. And so, for example, in the United States, uh, the mean wealth compared to the median wealth is something like six times higher. And so, for example, the median wealth is, you know, just a 50% wealth uh, file. So, for example, if you take kind of all people in America, if you look at what the 50th percent, kind of the actual middle person is, that's median. Uh, the other way to calculate, you know, is that you take, you know, what is all the wealth divided by number of people, what is the average? Right. And so, for example, if you have Jeff Bezos and nine other people in a room, the average wealth of that room is going to be very high. Right. It's going to be like billions. Uh, but the median wealth in that room is going to be like, you know, the, the, the fifth or sixth person, like the, the middle person in the room. Uh, and so that, that, that room would have an extraordinarily high ratio of mean wealth to median wealth. And what we've seen over the past, uh, you know, uh, several decades is that the United States has had a ton of wealth concentration. And so our, it's our ratio is about six. Uh, so the median, the mean wealth is about six times higher than the median wealth. And if you look at, for example, uh, you know, Japan or most countries uh, in Europe, uh, you're closer to kind of two or three. And so we've had a, a much kind of more skewed situation than others. Uh, and there's, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we've been kind of the the, the trade deficit axiom of the system. Uh, so we've outsourced a lot of our kind of uh, manufacturing. Uh, capabilities, whereas other countries have retained that to a higher degree. And then there's also fiscal choices, like who do you tax more, who do you tax less? Uh, we also have the highest per capita healthcare costs in the world uh, by a long shot. And so that that affects employers, that affects uh, you know employees, that affects all sorts of people. And so what you start to see in that situation over time is that you, you get 
kind of more and more kind of a fracture in society. And capitalism turns into crony capitalism, right? So you start to get kind of socialism for the rich, like you get bailouts, you kind of, you know, because at the donor class, uh, starts to kind of, you know, uh, basically capture politicians, and you get that kind of ver this, like ver uh, vicious cycle where you have kind of more and more corruption taking place, uh, and then you start to see on the other end of the spectrum, you see rising populism, and that can that can take the form of, you know, people on the right, people on the left. There's all sorts of different, uh, you know, kind of ways to manifest that, and so we're starting to see over the past uh, decade. Uh, we've been seeing a lot of rising populism, and it partially depends on what country you're in. So, for example, the United States has had it uh, to a pretty substantial level. We also see it in certain European countries, and we're seeing it uh, in several emerging markets. Um, it's somewhat correlated with wealth concentration. So, countries that have less of it generally see less populism. Like, for example, in Japan, uh, but in the United States, because we have lower social mobility than most other developed countries, and because we have pretty high levels of wealth concentration. Uh, we're starting to see it kind of more sharply here in the United States compared to at least some of our peers. Uh, but of course, there's other reasons as well. So in Europe, for example, popul populism tends to center a little bit more on immigration uh, because, you know, they, they're they they're closer. You know, they're not like, you know, the United States is geographically positioned, uh, whereas uh, Europe has, you know, basically that influx of, of immigrants at one point. So you start to see kind of conflicts there. And so, you know, different parts of the world, this can kind of manifest itself in different ways. And it doesn't really fall cleanly along kind of right and left lines. And it starts to, it's almost like the, the far right and the far left start to get kind of circular, where in some ways they start to kind of resemble each other in certain ways. And so that, that's what we're seeing now. And this this happened before. I mean, um, if you look, you know, a lot of people that, that are familiar with this might be familiar with the fourth turning, which is basically the idea that every four generations or so, uh, you have a very large change in society. I know Brandon from Swan has, has, has gone into that deeply. Uh, and so... The last time we had populism in the United States rising to this level was the previous fourth turning, which is back in you know the 30s. Yeah, Brandon Quidham, uh, lead of communications here at Swan, wrote a, a fantastic piece, brandonquidham.com, and he dives into the fourth turning. Does a great summary of Neil Strauss's book, The Fourth Turning, and uh, you know so it, it then relates it all back to Bitcoin and what's happening here in the next 10, 20 years, um, and it's incredible if you do read the book and or just Brandon's summary of the of the book how um it does see how closely it seems to track events uh especially for the last you know three or four cycles 80 year cycles uh in this country and uh we're certainly seeing that unrest now that was predicted in fourth turnings which comes along with the distrust of institutions uh and a you know dismantling of them and uh, building new institutions in their place uh jeff you call in your latest piece you call fiat money the monopoly which i thought was great because it's you know the play on words too it's kind of monopoly money right <laughs> you can just make more of it there's that great meme that goes around with the old monopoly rules that said the bank cannot run out of money if the bank does run out of money just take some paper and make more <laughs> make more of it uh it, it's just so perfect um so you describe fiat money system as the monopoly and you describe uh bitcoin uh deflationary money as the challenger to that monopoly um, so in this kind of struggle that we're seeing now, uh, and the court of the end of this cycle, we're seeing the end game of fiat money, uh, and the beginning of Bitcoin and Bitcoin obviously has a role to play in the end of, of fiat money. Can you talk about the kind of interplay between fiat and Bitcoin that we're going to see here in the next 10 or 20 years and how they're going to affect one another's, uh, development? Yeah. So I think I, I, 
encourage people to read the piece because it lays out exactly what the kind of the next steps are. And, and I'm going to talk specifically um, about um, some of the things that people might not have gotten from that piece. When I used uh, when I used a 10x advantage kind of technology companies to create value, um, I look for companies that have 10 times the advantage of a monopoly. That doesn't necessarily say they will win, but it gives them a better chance because to create to to win against a monopoly, you need to you need to create an isolated. It's not a broad-based platform. It's an isolated platform. It has to have a huge advantage to get through the noise of a market. Um, and a lot of people took that and saw said, "Okay, that makes a lot of sense with the existing fiat system." One thing I will say is that it was people missed on that article is I also meant it for all the coins that are competing against Bitcoin. You can't, unless it has a 10 times advantage, Bitcoin is already here. And, and you, if people literally listening to this know where Lightning Network is going and everything else. So, so I don't see an innovation out there that has that type of advantage to Bitcoin that would make me move. So, that is, uh, so, so I think it's just an important piece of this. Way more important. Is that is this technology as it's moving today, whether I like it or not, requires the technology requires a currency that allows for deflation. It doesn't mandate deflation, but it requires a currency that allows for deflation. Requirement. Every single other path is concentration of power and wealth, um, leading to dictatorship along the way. And and and, and I. And when I when I first wrote the book, I, I remember going back. It was released last year, but it was written before that. I was actually I really cared. Is there another solve to this system? Could governments get together, create a new bank or a type of unit, and fix this system? And I've come to the conclusion that no. So will they try? Will they try? To, and in this trust environment, is it more likely that they'll go digital? Each one will try with their own. Uh, digital currencies, um, and then try to consolidate power that way. It's way more likely that you're not going to get governments to come together to create a common currency. And why? Because of the same things that we just talked about. Because because you'd have to force your economy through this painful restructure. And I don't think anybody will take that short term. I mean, you'd have to point uh, and, and trust that other governments are going to do the same thing. It's a highly unlikely. So that leaves Bitcoin as an emerging new monetary system that will accelerate and accelerate and accelerate. I actually don't believe there's any other way. And uh, um, yeah, um, I welcome that uh, that thought vector. I'd welcome, but I don't. Uh, but I think I think Bitcoin will become not just a new reserve currency. Um, I think it it will be more than that. Then it'll be translated into um, the second layer and 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 be a forcing function for all the currencies. And and actually, it's more than that. I hope it is uh, because because it's the it's the best way to kind of be that forcing function for governments without creating war. Um, I'd be so so. But I can't think of another. I can't think of another way out of the existing mess because because it, the existing mess is so bad. It's just 
it requires, and, and, and it doesn't just require the type of monetary easing that people are talking about now. If you project what's forward, what would every, what, what, what do CEOs, what does every technology exec, what does every company require to do? I need to remove labor as fast as I can with technology and make my labor, as, as, otherwise I'm a ward of the state. Existing policies make that true. So it's actually how it, it'll, it, it'll create that cycle faster and faster, which requires more and more monetary easing on a never ending scale to be able to, to, to move forward. There is no fix out of the existing system, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so we were just talking a little bit, Lynn, about that fourth turning idea that we're sort of in this era of, you know, disruption and instability and, uh, however that ends up happening in these cycles, it seems that uh, the fiat money has caused it in this cycle. Um, Jeff says in his piece, and I, he was just alluding to it here as well, in The Greatest Game, he says, I believe Bitcoin gives humanity its best chance for a peaceful transition to the future. Um, out of this unrest, out of this distress, out of this massive wealth inequality, this uh, time theft that uh, you know the normal folks are living through, uh, during this time, do you believe that the Bitcoin helps us transition in a more peaceful way than we otherwise would be facing without it? I think potentially. I mean, it, it certainly gives people kind of an exit point that want to use it. Uh, so people can can analyze all the different kind of stores of value and make up their own mind about, you know, what 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 they think, how how kind of that helps them. And so, for example, you can look at real estate, for example, and see that, OK, it stores wealth. Uh, but then it's not very mobile, it's subject to taxes uh, that could go up substantially, especially if you start to have kind of states and local governments run into uh, fiscal issues. Uh, so, you know, that that's one option, but it's not necessarily the best option. Uh, precious metals, uh, I, I think a variety of kind of commodities, especially if you look at copper, uh, uranium, uh, you know, all these kind of industrial uh, things. I think that, you know, historically, they tend to go down in price because technology uh, gets better and better and makes them easier to extract. Uh, but they still go through these really big capex cycles, and so uh, I do think that over the next ten years, for example, uh, some of those will run into shortage, and there will be uh, kind of an uh, influx uh, of some of their prices. And so I think that's an area of store of value. Uh, basically, when you go kind of step by step through all of these, uh, Bitcoin's the one that's been doing w very well over the past decade uh, because it's you know it's the most modern one. It's benefiting from the network effect, as Jeff pointed out. Uh, some of the ones that have come in its wake haven't come up with any sort of 10x better uh, kind of solution. So they've not been able to displace Bitcoin. You know, because people often point out what if Bitcoin's the MySpace, but it's, you know, it's already at, you know, a, a multi-hundred billion dollar valuation, uh, whereas MySpace peaked out at about 12 billion and was, you know, kind of passed uh, by Facebook. And so if you look at all the different kind of options, uh, Bitcoin does represent, in my opinion, one of the best kind of exit strategies uh, that people can have as a portion of their portfolio. And of course, they can, they can dial that exposure up or down based on how, you know, what their what their risk tolerance is, what their views are, uh, you know, what all their what um, you know what their conviction is on that particular asset. Of course, some people, uh, you know, they're they're pretty kind of hardcore about it, so they like to have a very large position. Other people just like to have a non-zero position, uh, and so I think there's a, a wide range. Uh, but I think it's a really useful tool that people can use uh, to kind of opt out of some of the system. And so if you look at uh, you know how these kind of debt bubbles are historically done. You know, if, if, if governments find themselves up against these really big levels of debt, what they normally do is try to have negative real interest rates. And so you start to see, for example, they'll, they'll do all sorts of fiscal stimulus and they'll try to have this non-zero inflation rate 
uh, and then they'll try to keep bond yields and, and savings bank yields below that inflation rate uh, so that basically your purchasing power bleeds over time. Uh, and so that basically makes that, that, you know, the debt goes down potentially in real terms, or at least stops going up. Uh, I mean, in nominal terms, if you look at, say, as a percentage of nominal GDP, uh, but basically anyone who's holding cash and bonds for that period uh, ends up losing purchasing power. And so as there's this scramble for, you know, stores of value, uh, I do think that Bitcoin is, is, is quite well positioned to take advantage of that. And we'll, we'll start to see over time how high that game theory goes. So, for example, the first decade of his life, it was largely a retail phenomenon. Uh, 2020 was the year of institutional interest. Uh, we also started to see at least a, a, you know, a couple nation states show some degree of interest. And so, for example, Iran's using it as a kind of a tool to get around some sanctions. We'll see if it goes up to higher levels than that. Uh, but basically, as, as it grows in market cap, as it grows in dispersion and liquidity, uh, it, gives, uh, you know, it catches the attention of larger players uh, and becomes a large enough market uh, for them to get into. And so we'll see how far it goes. But, you know, the, the combination of a store of value with a network effect, I think, is, you know, very powerful. Yeah, very compelling. Jeff, you make the point in The Price of Tomorrow that the store of value with the network effect, as Lynn just called it, pairs up with or combines forces with deflationary technology and therefore basically leads to the conclusion that Bitcoin must become the money. Can you just lay that out for the listeners, the viewers? How does Bitcoin, in your view, have to become the money because we have a deflationary technology environment? Well, the, the first 10x is against gold. Um, and so that's where, where we are now. Um, and, 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 the, and, and so you see it being used as a store of value. And Lynn's right. There's a whole bunch of other potential commodities that are used in battery technology and everything else. There, there's still a long course of different assets that can make you a lot of money. I'm talking about something bigger than that. So I'm not talking about immediate wealth generation. I'm talking about a system change. Now remember, we live in this system here, and the system and the system is competing against that system. And that system where technology is moving today requires, uh, I say it again, requires a, a, a monetary system that allows for deflation. Otherwise, concentration of power and wealth in a never-ending scale, it requires it. So I'm trying to move up a level out of the individual asset classes that'll do well in this environment and into what is requ required. And so that is a requirement no matter what, whether it's Bitcoin or not, it's a requirement for humanity to make a um, transition. Because we measure the existing system and everything in it by uh, all our life by the existing system, we try to accumulate wealth to spend later on or to pass to our kids or to be able to pay for our groceries and everything else. And, we, and we're into this trap that Prices have to go up and up, and we need to make more, and we need to make more, and that that all of that that you see is is playing with your brain because because you're measuring it from the existing system. And an alternative system would bring prices down, abundance would move up, a whole bunch of things that you can't see see today would be it's so clear in the new system and you would see all the manipulation, but it's really hard to, it's really hard to square those two things because we measure our lives by the existing system. So the next steps of that new system, I think 
it's already clear to a lot of people, at least in the Bitcoin community, that Bitcoin is going to overtake gold. It's a better, it's a better, uh, it's a better store of value, and a, and and as more people come onto that, as and realize that that it, that's self-evident, it's true. It, that network effect, they bring others on. Yes, there will be corrections. Yes, there will be a fud. Yes, there will be but over that that network effect will continue and continue, and turn into a, a primary reserve or a store of or a store of value. Beyond that, um, when you look at layer two Lightning Network and, and all of the innovation in the space, it's highly likely that that innovation takes it into an actual current into currencies as well. Not it doesn't have to. Governments could still control control their currencies and peg to Bitcoin in, in time, but it, but it's happening so fast that I could see a move to to actually. It, be, it becomes your currency as as well. So the first the first ten x value was against gold, and the next is the broader market, similar to Google first market being free search, and then everything else after free free search. Um. So and I've said this on a different podcast. Lynn referenced it when people talk about network effects and being just displaced by by something else. Um, Remember, you need a 10x type of value that the existing that the existing monopoly doesn't see in time to be able to build network effects. When people look at MySpace and Facebook, they miss a really important part of the structural foundation. MySpace was built to to computers, and and my and Facebook came out, came out on the mobile phone. People wanted and what what drove Facebook's adoption so fast. Was a mobile phone was a mobile phone because people could carry around the network in their pocket rather than go back to their office or home to be able to do a post. That was the 10x to, uh, to that innovation. But you, it requires that type of 10x, 10, 10 times mark, uh, market to be able to build that network effect fast enough. And that 10x type of value comes typically from a really narrow part of the market first. Thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate that. So I think what we've accomplished here and why I titled the episode Endgame is discussing, you know, the state of how we got here, uh, the evolution of how we got here and where we're headed uh, in this battle, you know, between Bitcoin and fiat currencies as a whole. Um, I think we've heard, a, you know, I think a great summary of where two possible futures are, one united possible future that we might be able to uh see over the next 10, 20 years, uh, competition between currencies where Bitcoin, because of its superiority, uh, will become a, a store of value, the uh, reserve currency, and maybe, uh, you know, we'll see other national currencies, as Jeff said, pegged to Bitcoin. Uh, but in either case, the future is good. And, and we need to have uh, a currency like Lightning or a currency based on Bitcoin like Lightning as a way to kind of opt out of uh, national currencies that may serve as privacy panopticons. So I think that the future is bright uh, with Bitcoin, a lot brighter than it would be otherwise. And I appreciate both of your views. We do have a couple of questions uh, Ready, from- Can I, can I ask yes, a go question ahead. to Lynn on the way through? Cause it's gonna, I look for attack vectors on my thinking where I could be wrong. And and one of the things that, uh, that I see in the short term is, not that I expect it, but 
but what if governments today, what if they said, okay, we're going to let the system unwind. And then just, just as it all unwound and reset, they protected a couple of banks and rebuilt it. That would have enormous uh, short-term implications for Bitcoin as well as an asset class. Not long-term, but short-term, it would have massive, because everything would be repriced. And, and again, I don't expect that out. I don't expect that outcome. But, but, but if you're saying kind of when, when, when you're dealing in an environment that is, that is so fast, far past the point of rescue, we should be looking for what, what type of things could, <laughs> could manipulate or create, create the system and reset it and, and come back out the other side. And that is one of those things. Um, uh, that, 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 that you could kind of say, okay, here's a great reset. And I'd love Lynn's thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. that, I mean, there's a couple different kind of like thought experience we can go down of how they might want to reset it. And so kind of the, the base case, kind of the easier approach that they often try to do is basically, you know, run large fiscal deficits, uh, have, the, have the central bank buy a large portion of the bonds, uh, you know, if you increase the monetary supply at a fast enough rate to overcome technological deflation for a brief period of time, uh, that you know, and you hold those yields like you know, uh, you know, close to zero, then you have inflating away debt in nominal terms. Uh, now, there's a couple other alternatives to that that could, you know, they can go down those routes. And so, for one example, people call for like a, a debt jubilee, for example, where you have basically the central bank buys a lot of the debt and then. Uh, you know, basically just deletes it from their balance sheet. And so that's different from, say, the private, you know, defaulting on the private sector. Uh, the issue with that is that, you know, as currently structured, at least, you know, ostensibly, the, the central banks are separate from the governments. And the, the way that they're able to maintain that to some marginal degree is that the central bank has assets and liabilities that roughly equal each other. And so they're, you know, they're not kind of, you know, on, insolvent on paper. Uh, whereas if you, you know, and so the way this, the Federal Reserve works, for example, uh, is that you know all the currency that, that the U.S. issues are their liabilities, and so currency in circulation and bank reserves that they owe to you know all the various member banks that deposit with them. Those are their liabilities, and then their assets are treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, and a couple other things. And so, if they were to say delete the treasuries and to say you know we're we're forgiving the government uh, you know, all of its debts, uh, then they're stuck with the liabilities and they don't have any of the assets, and therefore they're basically reliant on the treasury in perpetuity. And so that that's where you kind of get that merger. Uh, that MMT style kind of merger of government with central banks, uh, and that's why you know that that kind of is normally not the direction they want to go. In. We've had a couple central banks around the world kind of run on negative equity, uh, and it's generally frowned upon because it it greatly removes any sort of you know even kind of vestige of of independence they have. The other option is let's say they just stop printing tomorrow, right? You just you know, the central bank says we're just not going to we're not going to print anymore. Uh, we were starting to see things like what we saw in Q4 2019 with the repo spike. Yeah. Uh, you know, where, or we'd also see uh, what we saw in March 2020, which is basically, uh, you know, all these treasures are coming to market. Uh, we're start, we'll start to see kind of an appreciating dollar rapidly compared to other currencies because all that foreign dollar dominant debt would be bidding for dollars to support their, their you know, their, their debts. And they, they don't have any sort of access to a printer. Uh, and you basically see a mad scramble for dollars. Uh, eventually, the, the, you know, if the U.S. government were not able to, you know, if it was locked into its current law and not able to just print. Uh, basically, they would default on treasuries nominally, uh, and then you know that that's a very large chunk of bank collateral. So you basically every bank in the United States would go insolvent, uh, and you'd have this you know this this 
kind of really sharp deflationary spiral, kind of like if if March 2020 just never turned up. If Mar you know, just every every asset class selling off. Yeah. Yeah, and you'd see. I mean, even gold, silver, almost certainly Bitcoin. Every sort of everything would kind of at in that short period of time be going down in in, in dollar price until it just broke, uh, and then we'd be in a whole different regime. I mean, every bank would be collapsed. Uh, yeah. You know, money wouldn't be worth anything, and we you know, that that then after that, it's it's just like a stepwise change. Everything's different, and so you would. I think you'd have some, you'd have absolute chaos for some period of time. Uh, but it's just it's it's rarely been tried. I mean, basically, you know, I think a good way to phrase it is that almost no fiat currency regime has ever like let itself die by deflation. They never just say we're just going to stop printing. But yeah, in theory, if they were to do it, that you'd see that kind of deflationary implosion and then some sort of reset. You know, it would get really ugly. But then we'll, we'd see what happens from there. Uh, that'd be far from my base case, just because it, it's super rare for a government to default on totally. their own on totally. their own. Yeah. Totally, totally agree. I just I, when I when I say in a world like we live in right now, then it's a, if it's a one percent probability, I want to make sure that I'm I'm, I'm looking at that, that 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 opportunity because the other side of this case, I I know what's happening. That's what we wrote about. You write about it all the time as well. And it has to ever increasing stimulus forever, fiscal, monetary, everything for forever, which is a concentration of power. Um, and 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 so that path, that path doesn't fix it either. And 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 nor, like Ray Dalio talks about the great delever the great deleveraging or the uh, uh, a way a beautiful deleverage. What he misses uh, is it's not beautiful for everybody, by the way. <laughs> but what, but what he misses is is that could happen in historically before technology was moving this fast. If we're trusting central banks and politicians to understand how fast technology is moving the other way, to be able to come up with the right number for that globally. Good luck. Good luck. It's uh, they they will they will miss it by a by a margin, and so we're going to be here in this this environment for a long time. What's been different from all of other historical transitions in this as well is there was never an asset class like Bitcoin. So the more that this is happening, and the more awareness that happen, is happening on it, Bitcoin will will move faster and faster and weaken the existing system. Yep, yep, I agree completely. That's, I mean, that's where my bets are uh, on the way this transitions, and my hope for that matter uh, that this is a way to opt out and transition uh, peacefully to, or at least relatively peacefully to uh, a new regime, new monetary regime. Okay. We have about 15 minutes left. And first of all, uh, everyone who's watching, please like the video. Uh, we have a lot of people watching on YouTube and it's awesome to see. If you haven't liked the video yet, please do. It does help us spread this video in particular in the channel and Bitcoin education uh, around on YouTube. We got, we got to uh, have these Bitcoin only channels fight some of these uh, big crypto channels that are out there uh, and get some of this uh, solid Bitcoin information out. Um, so a lot of new people are coming into Bitcoin. They're finding Bitcoin. They're diving in and learning about it. Uh, I know a lot of our members at Swan are new hodlers. And we've also been exploring Clubhouse. It's a new audio social media platform. Last night, Brecky and Brandon and I hosted a Bitcoin for Beginners session on Clubhouse. It went for three and a half hours uh, and we had 
dozens and dozens of great questions from very enthusiastic newcomers. They were fantastic questions, really inspiring, actually, kind of take, taking uh, the three of us back to the early days of our understanding of Bitcoin, our discovery of Bitcoin. Um, and many of them are the common misconceptions that Lynn wrote about in her article, Seven Misconceptions About Bitcoin. Uh, and so my plan is, my hope is to clip this portion of the video out and make it a separate video that we can share with newcomers uh, to debunk this common FUD. So we'll go back and forth uh, on these seven common uh, fear, uh, generators of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or FUD as we call it. And uh, we'll start with Lynn. Uh, can you address the, or answer or debunk the idea that Bitcoin is a bubble? Yeah, so I mean, I think to start with, I think it's, you know, it's really good to have FUD, right? So for any any asset, you should have fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You should, you know, be highly <laughs> critical of any asset uh, because a lot of assets are, you know, there are a lot of bubbles out there. There are things to be worried about. Uh, you do have to manage, you know, position sizes or leverage, whatever the case may be. And so I think, you know, the first thing is, basically accepting that that you do want to be critical to any asset class. Uh, and I've, I've been that with Bitcoin, for example. I, you know, I looked at it in 2017 when it was having that big run-up. And I, you know, for a variety of reasons, I, I included I was not going to invest in it. Uh, and then it had that blow-off top. It, it consolidated. And so basically, to take a step back, um, you know, Bitcoin goes through these, these kind of four-year supply cycles, where every four years, the number of new Bitcoins gets cut in half. Uh, and so normally, you know, Bitcoins are generated every 10 minutes when a new block is introduced to the blockchain. And uh, the number of Bitcoins that are added to the system with each block gets cut in half every four years. And so the total supply keeps going up, uh, you know, until it eventually reaches 21 million. Uh, but the rate of new supply keeps going down. And so what we generally see is that, you know, we, we see a big run-up in price. Uh, and then it has a blow off top and then it, you know, it, it crashes and you get this kind of consolidation and it sort of finds an equilibrium between buyers and sellers. Uh, but right when it does that, after a couple of years, you get another supply shock. And so, you know, the, the supply is cut in half, but demand is still there. And then, you know, over time that starts to manifest in higher prices. Uh, and then of course, momentum traders jump on board. People get over leverage, you know, people get euphoric. It has a blow off top. And then, you know, finally just, you know, buyers get exhausted and it just, it, it rapidly unfolds uh, then you get a big crash and you get another consolidation it finds another balance and then you get another supply having and so that that's what you know we've gone through about three cycles of that uh and you know so far it's played out roughly the same way every time and there are there are a variety of different fundamental indicators you can use you can look at uh you know market uh capitalization to realize capitalization uh you can look at you know relative strength index you can you can look at various indicators to basically see how overbought you are and you can also, you know, you can look at, for example, Google searches for it. Uh, and so basically, I would say that at this stage where we are now, uh, we're certainly in a bull run. Uh, I think we had a, you know, a local bubble, like, a, you know, you, you can have these kind of near-term overbought conditions, and then you relieve some pressure and build up again. Uh, I, th I think current at the moment does not look like we're at any sort of end cycle phase. It just looks like we're kind of in a, in a mid-cycle phase. Uh, but I think, you know, you can manage that by just having a long enough timeline and by looking at all these different indicators that might show you roughly where you are. And that can help you just determine for yourself how much risk you want to take, how much you want to allocate to this asset class uh, so that you're not concerned with price fluctuations, right? If, if, you're, if you're up all night, if you're expecting to get super rich in three months, you're, you're, you know, you're worried about kind of a 20% drawdown, then basically what that's telling you is that your position size is too big for your, you know, whatever the case may be for your financial situation, for your level of conviction, and that you basically just need to make sure that your position size is appropriate uh, you know, for your, for who you are. 
Absolutely, Jeff. I'll give you a chance to jump in there and add on if you have anything. Otherwise, we'll move on to the next piece of FUD. Yeah, and and long term, uh, it, you you don't you don't get a new monetary standard very often in a in lifetime. Models. It, it, something like this, this invention. I put so I put a quote up because I think it's possibly humanity's greatest invention. That seems so ludicrous. I know when I say that, it seems that uh, that, uh, that ludicrous. When you, but um, because people are measuring today what, what, it, what it does today, and it doesn't have a lot of use. But if you play that forward, on what this does, and everything else that is fixed as a result, it is it, it quite possibly could be. I'm sure when Gutenberg, in, uh, the Gutenberg Press, and, um, and democratizing information and allowing information to travel. I'm sure when that was invented, people didn't say it was the greatest invention in the world. So this is similarly, we're very early in a cycle that, uh, that, ha uh, that has massive implications for how our world is structured and positive uh, massive implications for how our world is structured. Um, so so I, I do understand that uh, that there will naturally be a whole bunch of FUD here. I also understand that, um, it, that in this community, it can be overwhelming for somebody new into the community who is scared. And, and what, what I love about Lynn, what I love about Preston, what I love about a whole bunch of the, the, the community here is we have to understand it didn't look like this to us when we started either. We had to go through this path to be able to understand it. And so I, I prefer it, and, and Swan does a good job here. When you're, when you're, when understand what people would think about this asset class when they come in, even the haters, it's it's okay. Absolutely, I think that's a really important point to make before we go through the rest of these uh, claims about Bitcoin that you often hear when you're coming into the space. So we have eight minutes left. Six. Uh, claims to discuss. So the the crunch is on about a minute and 15 seconds for each one. So Jeff, challenge is on. A minute on Bitcoin's intrinsic value is zero. A currency's intrinsic value is zero, if that's the case. It's just a piece of paper. It's an abstraction of our time. It's just an abstraction of our time that says um, what we decide it is. When you went, and so so you currency is a measure of I get paid X that I can spend later on. That is all all it is. It's an abstraction of your of your time. When you manipulate uh, currency, you manipulate time as a byproduct, and you can expect a whole bunch of downstream consequences of that. So so what what Bitcoin does is it changes that that. You can trust that if I do this for uh, on, on Bitcoin, I can spend that way later on, and nobody can manipulate it. Excellent, Lynn. Let's go to you. Bitcoin isn't scalable. Uh, yeah. So that that's been a kind of a common criticism of some of these other uh, tokens that have tried to basically make make sacrifices. So if you look at how payment system works. You're, you're optimizing for a couple of different variables and making sacrifices for other variables. And so, for example, Visa, you know, they sacrifice decentralization, uh, but they maximize the amount of throughput that can happen in the system. Uh, and they also, you know, they have pretty high security. On the other hand, uh, you, you could sacrifice some of those other attributes 
uh, to have more decentralization. And so with Bitcoin, uh, you know, they, they sacrifice throughput of the system on the base layer. And so there's only a handful of transactions that can happen per second on average. Uh, but there's no cap on the amount of value that can be transmitted uh, per second. And so basically the way that Bitcoin's designed is that, you know, it, it's really good for, for large payments and settlements. Uh, but then over time, you'll need some sort of scalability solutions built on top of that. And that's where we have things like the Lightning Network and some other things like Liquid uh, that basically, you know, add second layers onto that base uh, network. And so they still allow, you know, for, for different degrees of trust, you can have totally trustless second layer, you can have partial trust second layer, all sorts of different kind of ways to do it, depending on what the particular needs of the user are. Uh, but basically, there are ways to, uh, you know, batch transactions together. And so actually, if you look at the banking system, that's how something like Visa works as well. When they do those rapid transactions for second, they're not settling those transactions on the spot. They're, they're basically, you know, updating their ledger, and then those, those banks are settling in larger uh, batches behind the scenes. And that's essentially how Bitcoin would work with Lightning, is that Bitcoin would be the settlement layer and Lightning would be the, you know, the, 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 quicker, the quicker layer. And so I think that over time, Bitcoin in some ways is looking more like the banking system in that specific regard. Other, other protocols have tried to increase throughput on the base layer, uh, but that comes with a lot of sacrifices, mainly that you make the nodes very hard for regular users to run, and therefore you have less node decentralization. You have kind of, you know, it takes a larger entity to be able to run a node properly. Thank you. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Jeff, Jeff, one minute on Bitcoin wastes energy. energy. So, so Bitcoin does use a lot of energy. It's part of the, it's part of the design in, in driving the scarcity. Here's a, a huge part that people don't see. The existing system requires embedded growth mindset. Embedded growth is based in this existing system. So let's imagine uh, on, on one axis, today solar is coming on as a lower cost form of energy, and it's additive to the entire energy grid. And we can expect that to continue. So the only way to overcome that lower cost and, and cleaner form of energy in the existing system is manipulate that out. So increase inflation and, and essentially destroy all the value that, it, that that innovation brought to society by making prices go up um, through time. So an order of magnitude bigger problem for the, our environment is the existing systems growth minds, growth for the sake of all growth. We have to grow forever, otherwise the debt collapses. And, and we'll manipulate money to be able to grow. So. In context, that's not even looked at when people talk about this. Now, on the other side, uh, Bitcoin, it, as a, for the network to survive, and we're not network to survive, miners are always looking for the cheapest form of energy. And so they actually help drive lower, lower cost and green forms of energy in, the, in, the, in scaling uh, Bitcoin because they're always on the lookout of that. But I'd say the thing that's missed across most of the community and in the green how is a government going to solve the green energy, everything else from within the existing system when they have to eradicate those gains by printing more money to be able to, to make innovation not be deflationary? It's impossible. The existing system can't solve it. Thank you, Jeff. Lynn, a minute on Bitcoin is too volatile. Yeah, so that's a common criticism about, you know, Bitcoin... Uh, as a store of value, that it's just way too volatile. Like we, you know, we've saw, we've seen in recent days. I mean, it, it can go down dramatically in a number of hours, uh, let alone what it can do over, you know, a course of days or weeks. 
Now, I think it's helpful to think of Bitcoin as an emergent store of value. And so basically what we're watching over the past you know, 12 years is that we're watching the Bitcoin network grow and absorb more capital. Now, there's different ways to measure it. So for example, if you measure uh, the market value uh, compared to the realized value, which is basically, it compares the market capitalization uh, compared to what is essentially the cost basis. So the weighted average uh, cost basis that users bought into the network. Uh, by that metric, you've had decreased volatility with each four-year cycle. Uh, and so over time, as it grows into a larger and more dispersed asset class, uh, you should, in theory, see lower and lower, uh, you know, uh, 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 drawdowns and, 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 you know, fluctuations based on that. Uh, now, until Bitcoin reaches a large market capitalization, you should still expect to see a significant degree of volatility. And so basically, instead of looking at it as, a, as an already finished store of value, you're looking at something becoming a store of value uh, over time. And so far, it's been a grower of value because it's, you know, it's early on the S curve, it's having that big growth profile. And so you basically are, you're, you're getting a lot more volatility in exchange for more growth. Now, as that completes the mature phase of the cycle, you should see, you know, much lower growth, uh, but then much less volatility. If the system kind of works out as many of the Bitcoin bulls expect that it will. Lynn, I know you have to go here in just one minute. So I will give you this last one and then we'll have one more for Jeff and we'll be out for this episode. So Lynn, uh, Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. So addressing that one, there's, there's a couple ways to look at it. And so, you know, a Ponzi scheme, as people know, it is basically that, you know, uh, people put money into an investment, uh, that investor ends up lying to them rather than investing their money. Uh, they're just paying them back from, you know, previous investor money until they run out of no enough new buyers and someone tries to get their payment and they can't. And then it's revealed that the whole thing is a fraud. Now, some people have said that Bitcoin's a Ponzi scheme. Now, in some ways, it's, it's the opposite of a Ponzi scheme because Bitcoin is actually, you know, it's, it's open source. It's totally, you know, verifiable, auditable. Uh, anyone who has their keys can move their Bitcoin. And so in that sense, it doesn't really meet any of the, the definitions of a Ponzi scheme. Now, some people then apply, apply it to a broader level and they say, okay, a Bitcoin is only worth what someone's willing to pay it for you. And that therefore, eventually you'll kind of run out of buyers. Now, again, I would, look, I would go back to that kind of S-curve of adoption. So right now you're in this rapid period of growth, uh, but as you get into a mature phase, uh, then you're in more of a steady state. And, and we can kind of look at, at gold today has been in you know, a steady state for a while where it keeps up with the growth of money supply in terms of price, uh, but it doesn't really kind of dramatically alter your purchasing power. And again, just like Bitcoin, gold is only worth what someone else will pay you for it. You know, it has you know, certain properties that make it valuable for a variety of reasons. Uh, and same thing with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has utility as an international payment system and settlement system. And of course, it also has utility as a store of value. Uh, but it's, you know, it, its focus is very monetary in nature. Uh, and so, you know, there are frictional costs to the system, like, you know, transaction costs and, and you know, kind of block rewards and basically security fees for, for processing transactions. Uh, but that applies to any uh, non-cash flow store of value. And so, for example, if you, if you were to store your, you know, your, your value in wine or classic cars or, you know, beachfront property or fine art, what you're basically doing is you're buying an object that does not produce cash flows with the understanding that it's scarce and, and likely to kind of hold its purchasing power compared to, uh, you know, other things you might consume. And there are some frictional costs on that. Like, you know, you have to get it appraised, you have to transport it, you have to maintain it, whatever the case may be. Uh, many of those are less liquid. Uh, and so when you look at something like Bitcoin or gold, you're looking at a more liquid, you know, fungible, uh, you know, uh, situation. And there are frictional costs on the system just like any other kind of healthy system of commerce. 
And so in that sense, it can be thought of as, as pretty much like any other uh, non-cash flow store of value. Uh, and you know the main difference is that you know they all of those have some degree of utility. So they have you know wine you can you can drink it, uh, beachfront property you can live in it, classic cars you can drive in it. Uh, Bitcoin's uh, utility is basically that you can make permissionless uh, payments. Uh, you know, and it, you can self custody it. And so you know besides that utility, then there's a monetary premium assigned to it as people want to hold it as a store of value. Uh, you know, in case they were to use that utility, but moreover, because they know that other people recognize utility and might want to buy it from them at a substantial price at a later date. And so I, I would kind of compare it to other, other non-cash flow stores of value in that sense. Of, of course, you know, from the bullish perspective, you can say combined with the network effect, uh, you know, it, it's in many ways better than those other stores of value. Uh, but in terms of kind of the mechanics of how the system works, it's not too different than them. Fantastic. And if you want to hear more from Lynn on that topic, that was a fantastic summary, but she dropped a piece yesterday on the Swan blog. Uh, the link is in the description of the video below. All right, Jeff, you get the final swipe at governments will ban Bitcoin. And Lynn, if you need to jump, uh, feel free. All right. So uh, yes, Jeff, governments will ban Bitcoin. First on, uh, on back on Lynn's, the, uh, the, the real Ponzi is the existing monetary policy. It requires ever increase exponentially more printing of money. It is yeah. by definition a Ponzi. It requires more and more and more, and the people closest to the top uh, are, are the beneficiaries. So, um, will governments ban, ban uh, Bitcoin? Uh, the simple answer is yes. Some governments will ban Bitcoin, um, but the game theory of Bitcoin means others will uh, will incentivize it. If you just look at uh, what's happening right now and uh, the likelihood of the U.S. embracing it um, and what that does to the geopolitical game in China, it is the way that U.S. Uh, it, 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 it seems to me U.S. would be most uh, uh, forward in driving Bitcoin because if you go back to the founding of the U.S., it is based on hard money. It is based on... Um, uh, it, it, it is based on freedom of the individual. So, so it is so polar opposite uh, of dictatorial state, uh, states. I could, it, it's, it's highly likely that that the U.S. kind of leads in into this. Will there be taxation on the on ramps? Will there be? Uh, 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 will there? Will be, there be some a whole bunch of things to figure out? Yes. But is it, it will will Bitcoin be banned by all governments? No chance where we are right now. Zero chance. Um, the uh, it, it will keep on moving. Uh, it, it would take to think about trying to ban it internationally right now. Uh, it, it, it it's just such a it's, it's such a zero probability uh, right now. Will certain governments ban it potentially? Um, uh, they'll. Uh, I saw that tweet. I can't remember who put it. The, the first government who uh, who goes in heavy right now won't have to charge taxes forever. Because, yeah, 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 because of that. And when you think about the 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 incentive structure for 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 what are governments anyways? Right. It's a it's a it's something we all agree to. A so a structure that we all agree to. Um, to work under, underneath. So it should be, forget governments, it should be our decision. 
and and as a, as that happens more and more throughout society, there's nothing that you can do to stop a decentralized network where we are now with it with with the exponential uh, pace of how fast this is moving. Stop. Absolutely agree. Thank you so much for answering that uh, common question that we get. So there you have it, uh, Lynn Alden and Jeff Booth answering seven common misconceptions about Bitcoin. Uh, so for all of you new coiners out there, new holders, um, I hope that this helps and we'll clip it out and put it up on the channel as a separate video and uh, make sure that we share it on Twitter and elsewhere, wherever uh, we have these common questions asked. Jeff, thank you so much for your time, man. I'm going to uh, go ahead and let you drop, and I'll wrap this thing up. Thanks Appreciate so your time. Thanks a so bunch. All right. See you. Bye, Jeff. Okay. Uh, thanks for being here, everyone. Uh, it was a fantastic show. Uh, we have links below to the works we discussed today by Lynn and Jeff in the YouTube uh, video description. That will also be in the podcast description when this audio goes up. Uh, also, we like I said, we had a incredible time on clubhouse last night it is an ios only app right now it is invite only still at this point it's it's rolling out so if you are on ios if you are uh you know just ask somebody for an invite i have a few myself uh dm on on twitter and and ask if you want to get in uh it will open up to android and the wider world at some point uh hopefully in the near future it is a fantastic platform it's an audio social network and it's been a lot of fun to discuss bitcoin on that network Essentially, we ran a radio show last night with uh, Brecky and Brandon and myself, and we answered questions from beginners for three and a half hours. And like I said, it was incredibly inspiring, inspiring uh, to, and expiring, I guess, too, because it was uh, three and a half hours. It was both. Uh, it was really inspiring to answer those questions and to hear the excitement and the uh, just curiosity uh, for Bitcoin. And this uh, cycle, just like the previous cycles before it, are going to bring in more and more people. You, as a Bitcoiner, uh, the person who is known as uh, someone who holds or knows something about Bitcoin in your circle of friends and family are going to be asked about Bitcoin this year if you have not been already many times. Uh, so you should grab a referral link. Even if you don't stack at Swan, you should grab a referral link at swanbitcoin.com slash enlist, E-N-L-I-S-T. And you can join our referral program. It's called the Swan Force. And uh, we have a couple thousand members of the Swan Force now out there spreading their referral link and talking about Bitcoin, uh, a great way that you can do that is to uh, share a book. So when you sign into your SwanForce account, a dashboard, you'll be able to, you'll get a link that's unique for you that will allow you to give a free book away. And anybody who downloads that book, Inventing Bitcoin, by the way, uh, by co uh, Swan co-founder Jan Pritzker, anyone who downloads Inventing Bitcoin from your SwanForce landing page will you will get 25% of their fees for three years. So you can really stack some meaningful sats. Um, and you can also just grab the book straight yourself at swanbitcoin.com slash free book. Share it freely uh, with friends and family. Uh, Inventing Bitcoin is a great introduction to the Bitcoin system and why Bitcoin is important for the world. Uh, so grab that book by Jan, share it far and wide. Uh, we gave it away quite a bit last night. Uh, also, uh, subscribe to the channel here uh, at Swan Signal. Uh, YouTube channel. Uh, we put out contents on a regular basis. We do two live shows per week. Uh, this show on Tuesdays and then Swan Lounge, which is usually on, on Fridays. 
And there are two different shows. Uh, this one, you know, ha- pairs up guests, and we have usually kind of a more serious conversation. And then in uh, on the Swan Lounge, we kind of have more laid back conversation, talk about the week's events, and usually have a few more people on. It's a good time. Both are great formats. Uh, we also have a lot of educational content uh, on the channel now and going up all the time. So subscribe here. Share this channel with your friends and family. The podcast for this, if you're into audio. Uh, audio podcasts, you can subscribe at swansignalpodcast.com. And that is it for this week. Thanks again so much for joining us. We'll see you next week on Swan Signal Live with Andy Edstrom and Preston Pish. That'll be a prime time episode at 9 p.m. Eastern. Should be a fantastic one. Those guys have been been paired up on the show at least two times before, maybe three times before already. And uh, it's always, uh, always fire episodes. These guys are super smart and bring hot takes to the table. So be here next week for the primetime edition of Swan Signal Live with Andy and Preston. Until then, take care. Thanks to Lynn and Jeff for joining us. You can find Lynn on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. That's L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N-C-O-N-T-A-C-T. And Jeff is at Jeff Booth at J-E-F-F-B-O-O-T-H. I am at Citizen Bitcoin, and you'll find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you so much for joining us. We're really happy you're here learning about Bitcoin, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. It's fun to join us live on the YouTube broadcasts at youtube.com slash swansignal. Head over there, subscribe, turn on the notifications. Uh, we have a lot of fun in the live chat, and we often work in some questions from listeners. And also while you're there on our YouTube channel, check out Bitcoin TV. It is a 24-7 stream of the best Bitcoin content. There's a price ticker there, the market cap, some other vital metrics of the Bitcoin network. And streaming 24-7 all around the world, the best Bitcoin content. It's a lot of fun. You can subscribe to this podcast if you are not already at swansignalpodcast.com. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. (laughs) 